coming up on the Footballers Wines Hotline. And I just wonder sometimes if we have seen an increase in some injuries because the surface is so good. I think in nearly 21 years as physiotherapist at uh, Norwich City, there were probably three players that were wanting to be footballers, but they didn't want to play football. Footballers Wines. Footballers Wines. The Footballers Wines Hotline. So here on the Footballers Wines Hotline, I have an absolutely legendary figure of the football physiotherapy world. It's former Norwich physio, Tim Shepherd. Hello, Tim. Good evening, Pete. How are you doing? I'm fine. It's uh, so interesting to look up on the sort of work about the profile between uh, physiotherapy, football and wine. It's an interesting combination. It's an interesting Venn diagram, which I understand you're very much at the heart of. So <laughs> let's, uh, let's get cracking on that one. Um, I mean, first of all, to sort of fill people in who aren't necessarily um, au fait with your career, um, I was quite struck by the fact that, that you're probably one of the only physios ever to have been inducted into their club's Hall of Fame and, and get a testimonial. Can you tell me a bit about those two things? Well, I, I started as physiotherapist at Norwich City Football Club in 1980, and I worked until the summer of 2001. Mm. So I think the longevity of the career, and at that time, they were really keen to sort of build up this Hall of Fame where they um, respected and rewarded people who've done a great deal of work for the football club in any capacity, whether it was um, a groundsman who had given great service, a physiotherapist, a footballer, a manager, mm. A board director and consequently as a subsequence of that because I'd done 20 years um, they had deemed to sort of add me to this list so I was on the original one of a hundred who were brought into this at such a, a good football club and after that I think in recognition of the doing the 20 years somebody somewhere at the club had muted you know well Players get a testimonial at 10 years, you know, yeah. Tim's done 20, surely there should be some sort of official recognition. And that's how it came about. So I was extremely grateful for, um, and I really enjoyed the evening. It was nice to have that recognition. Not so much for my, just for myself, but for the fact that the profession should be recognised in being the chartered physiotherapist working in professional football. You don't sound um, to my... Um, albeit untrained ears, like you have a, a classic Norwich accent. I mean, how, how did you end up working for, for Norwich City? Well, it's, a, it's an interesting way I got into football, really, Pete, because when I used to, I'm from Bolton, mm. uh, and I don't have to tell you where that is. And if no. I do, it's, it's very sad. <laughs> anyway, I, I trained at Bolton Wanderers as a, as a schoolboy. That's my hometown, obviously. Mm. And when I was training there, there was a, a con colleague of mine from school he and I used to train there and allegedly with the better players at the school right. and he was taken on as a pro and I wasn't and I tell him to this day that they got it the wrong way around <laughs> anyway he had a gay he had a professional career with Burnley Bolton and Blackpool mm. and consequently of that I then uh, made a bit of a mess of my knee playing football and uh, I had um an operation on my knee and then rehab for three or four months. And I thought, well, physiotherapy appeals as a profession. So I then went and trained as a physiotherapist. And then after that, I'd qualified. I would then go and see uh, this friend of mine, Paul Fletcher was his name, or is his name. <laughs> and I would go to the games where he was playing and watch, and then he'd introduce me to the backroom staff, the physiotherapist that the clubs was working at. 
And I'd been uh, qualified and working in the hospitals for five years. And he rang me up one day. He said, I heard on the grapevine from our physiotherapist at the club, there was a vacancy at Norwich. Hmm. Hence, I applied for the job and, uh, and I got it. So the, the period you, you covered in your career with Norwich, 1980 to 2001, um, you, you must have seen some massive changes in, in the sort of trends in, in football physiotherapy and the research. I mean, can you talk, talk us through some of the biggest changes that, that you saw? I think, yeah, on a, there were two main, or maybe three areas that have happened. I was amazed when I first came to the club in 1980 that we would go to away matches. And one of the first matches, um, I think it was Tottenham. Anyway, we were sat down there and I'd not got on my feet under the table regarding changing things and sort of, I was just observing initially because it was mm. a totally different uh, environment. And we ended up at a hotel and the pre-match meal was everyone was having a steak. Right. with a few slices of toast at 12 o'clock. <laughs> and I thought, this cannot be right. Yeah. So the doctor and I set up on a campaign of sort of slow, sort of mellow sort of education to sort of trying to get the point across that starch, carbohydrates and carbo loading from sort of Wednesday evening onwards was the way that it should be done. Mm. So that transition took place from sort of the steak and toast, toast and jam and honey, Right. That sort of that certainly changed, and then the fullness of time. Then we became far more educated regarding starch, carbohydrated, pasture-orientated eggs, and stuff like that. The second area that I think there's been a big transformation is the recognition that, that sports science has got a part to play, and I think that when it is done in conjunct with a good physiotherapist and a good sports science team, where they dovetail together, I can think that works very well indeed. And I think that area of introduction of sports scientists in bringing heart monitors, training monitors, looking at schedules, because you know when you've got say a player like uh, Rio Ferdinand, super player that he is, should he be doing the same training as say oh a very quick like Darren Eady that we had at Norwich was a very quick sharp player. Um, right. that sort of type you know why are those players doing the same type of training yeah so I think the big transformation that's taken is that training is more isolated and players are working in a more isolated way to maximize their training rather than being a group therapy side and I think the third area is where the influence of foreign coaches and foreign managers has mm. brought a far more professional attitude into this country regarding overall management, appreciation of um, individualizing coaching, training, and, and uh, the overall science and diet side. So from that point, they're the three areas that I think big, I've seen a big change. Right. I mean, uh, the one sort of big um, buzzword that I'm hearing a lot of these days in the world of physio and football is injury prevention rather than um, injury cure, I suppose. I mean, what is injury prevention and, and how has it um, improved, do you think, over the last few years? Well, I think it, injury prevention is, is looked at in all aspects of life, not just in, in, in sport, but in football, where you are looking at preventing injuries, reducing the number of injuries, and all injuries within the premiership are all monitored and the schedule and statistics are brought up by the Football Association Medical Department 
And that is good. And then the clubs get a feedback as to trends and, and behavior of injuries. Mm. I think the couple of areas that are looking at injury prevention are making sure the players have the correct footwear on. And a lot of the boots uh, are not suitable for that type of player. Certain All players have got different types of feet. Wow. Consequently, by that, I mean, you know, they've all got five toes, the majority of them anyway. But um, whereby they've got different flexibility areas, therefore they need to have different types of boots. And consequently, you get this area of stresses and strains in the foot that you probably shouldn't have. And I think that's very, that's a keen point. And some players may need individual insoles or called orthotics that go in their boots to prevent the problems with their feet and their ankles. So that's one area of prevention that I find very interesting and uh, helpful, I think. The other area of prevention that I, I think is very much appreciation of strengthening and strength in certain muscles will reduce the number of injuries, particularly tendon injuries. So I can, it's a matter of making sure that players have strength but also flexibility. So they may do individual programs for them on the strengthening side, but we don't want them to become muscle bound and lose their flexibility and mobility. Mm. And after that, then you've got to do uh, a great stretching mobility work. And I think the other area that the, um, has brought in a great influence are players doing Pilates and yoga, right. where you get flexibility with strength. And certainly I know there's uh, the likes of um, AC Milan, we're doing a lot of routines in yoga, Pilates-based work, and they've brought about a reduction in their problems. But the other area I find interesting is that the quality of pitches has improved dramatically. You know, years ago, you'd look at the matches, say, at Derby County's football ground, yeah. and the pitch would be a brown diamond <laughs> from sort of March onwards. Yeah. Whereas nowadays, there's not much you can tell the difference between the beginning and the end of the season. Yeah. The quality of surface is so good because part of it is synthetic. Mm. And I just wonder sometimes if we have seen an increase in some injuries because the surface is so good, the foot is getting caught in that quality surface rather than whereas before it would slip and slide just a little, but be rather more forgiving. And I think that's the next era of investigation I think to, should take place as the distribution of injuries has, has uh, changed, I find that the training pitches are so much better than they used to be, and certain studs, certain types of boots, I think are getting caught in the in the grass and causing a rotational stress. Yeah. And I think there's probably an increase. It'd be interesting to see the statistics from the FA, where there's an increase in the number of uh, anterior cruciate ligament injuries. Right. I mean, it's quite interesting that a lot of players have very lucrative boot sponsorship deals um, and you'd think that the boot manufacturers would be at pains to make sure that their boots um, fitted the player properly so they don't injure the person that they're sponsoring but that doesn't seem to be the case. Um, I don't totally agree with your latter statement there uh, Peter. <laughs> no. I understand we are exactly where you're coming from but what's happened is that Players will have lucrative contracts with a certain manufacturer. They will have customized boots with a customized insole inside and also maybe a customized strength in the sole. Because certain, certain boots you can get hold of 
when you can bend them in two, twist them to 90 degrees, and they're not providing enough support in the foot. Right. And I think where players have had uh, stress fractures of a metatarsal, um, I think they will have gone along to manufacturers and say, yeah, okay, we want to, to wear your boots on for obvious reasons, but for my particular foot, you'll have to strengthen up that particular part of the sole. Okay. And I think that definitely takes place. But yeah. I, I must say, several years ago, I did. we did have a player at Norwich who had a lucrative deal with one particular manufacturer. Uh-huh. And he took the white stripes off, right. off these boots, and then with a, a Tipex-type paint, he painted on the logo of the particular boot manufacturer he was sponsored by. <laughs> They will go to that depth because he wanted to wear that particular boot was right for him. Right. Which probably endorses what I've just said latterly. Yeah, but he didn't tell his sponsor, obviously, what he'd done. No, but on TV it was evident that he had that that spot, yeah, that uh, stripe on, yeah. (laughs) Um, Well, let's let's move off um, the immediate topic, but talk about staying within football. I mean, um, you worked under some... Um, uh, outstanding managers um, in your your time. Um, I mean, sort of a few names that that spring to mind: Nigel Worthington, who obviously went on to manage Northern Ireland, and um, Mike Walker, who took you on that incredible European run. Um, but the, sort of t- top of the list for me is Martin O'Neill. Probably, I mean, what was it obvious when he was at Norwich that? he was an outstanding manager and if so why i think uh, i'm not surprised that you pick his name out of all the managers that i've uh, worked under peter he'd obviously had great respect for brian clough yeah and the nice thing about martin was that his unpredictability and his way of extracting that extra 10 percent out of certain players and he had his players that he felt that he could get that 10 percent from and he did. Mm. Ones that he knew that he couldn't, you know, they possibly weren't there very long. Right. But he had a great talent for observing um, and letting players play without trying to, because he, he really would come on at the end of the training. And other, um, Steve Walford would do a lot of the coaching, and Martin would just come along and sum it all up like he would in life very well and succinctly. He would pluck out all the cherries there and sort of say, right, cut out all that dross. This is what really matters. He did that in life and he did that in football where he could really quickly see what the problem was that the opposition were causing us and negate that or work with the right player to expose a deficiency in the opposition. But he would make sure those players gave 110% and uh, a lot of them would sort of walk over hot coals for him. How about players, briefly? I mean, you've, you, you've seen a, a few come and go, obviously, um, in your time and, and worked with many, um, but were there one or two that really stood out during your time? I think the players that stood out, um, going from very early days, we, we bought a player called Dave Watson who came from Liverpool. He was a reserve player at Liverpool, but he came here and had a terrific career here as a centre-half. And as a person and as a player, with his attitude, he was exemplary. And he really was a top class. And this is not a fellow Lancastrian speaking, but he really was um, a top class. And I think he 
drove that team forward, whereby all the players looked up to him, the manager looked up to him, and he was beyond his years, really, in his behaviour and his, the way that he conducted himself. Mm. And he was very lucky, and I think the next player I'll mention was very lucky, that they worked in tandem together in the mid-80s with Steve Bruce. And Steve Bruce would put his head where you wouldn't put your foot. <laughs> and he was so tough, and he had a great attitude uh, to play football. He hated training, but his attitude to play, he was a different person. He really was a superb example on the pitch. And he'll demand that from his players now as manager. So I'm not surprised that he's sought after a manager because his attitude is so good and a nice guy. Going further on, I mean, there were very talented players. I mean, Martin O'Neill, I remember here as a player Mm. and a very talented player. I mean, I've never seen anybody in a pair of plimsolls keep a tennis ball up 250 times without it bouncing. <laughs> but Martin did, and it was, that was terrific. The other great, uh, interesting player and character was Mick Shannon, who's had a very successful career with the horses. Mm. Now, Mick was just a one-off. His great love was horses, and he loved his life within within football. And I think when you remember his arm swirling, but his arm would be swirling at the end of training at the training ground to get away because he knew jolly well he wanted to beat off along the A11 to get to Newmarket. <laughs> and that was his sole factor. But we had some great times with Mick and he really did give players a lot of belief in themselves. And they listened to him because of what he did achieved in his life. Mm. And he was excellent. And then you get the uh, other, you know, Darren Eady, I thought was a terrific player, but had his career cut short after he'd gone to Leicester. Um, and then another very interesting young man was Craig Bellamy. And he, I've never known anybody quite so driven to succeed as Craig. And his demand on himself and demand on others to help him to become the best player he can. And he has this terrific player and an unbelievable drive. I'm just moving on to sort of a few sort of more controversial sort of points about your uh, professional world. A couple of years ago, 2009, there was uh, a scandal in rugby union called Bloodgate. Do you remember, do you remember that? I do, involving Harlequins. Yes, and, and the, the physio, uh, uh, a person called Steph Brennan, I believe, was, was uh, blamed for that uh, process partially. Um, I just wondered whether um, you think that more and more of that uh, cheating uh, through faking injuries or using injuries to manipulate the results of sport is creeping into British professional sport. I mean, did you ever see anything remotely like that in your time? Thankfully, I never saw anything remotely like that at all. I think the nearest thing that you'll get to where you are bending the rules, so to speak, is where injuries are either exacerbated or feigned in certain scenarios. And I, I was aware that, and you just look in the papers every weekend, Pete, and look at the times of goals. Mm-hmm. And invariably you'll see somebody concedes a goal after they've just scored. Yeah. And we had a period of observing that and certain coaches and managers would say that if we scored, as soon as the game kicks off, somebody would go down injured. And that injury was to break play up, let everybody settle down. You're rejoicing and your mind is sort of on a high because you've just scored. 
the opposition are saying, come on, let's get back in. We've got to sort of um, get back on level terms here mm. uh, or at least breach the deficit. And that situation did take place whereby injuries were sort of exacerbated or feigned slightly and because we wanted the game to settle down. Now, that happens in any sport and you'll see it happen in rugby league, rugby union and in soccer across the world. I've never really uh, picked up on that, but definitely, definitely will now. Um, but um, I mean, is that that's obviously something that's encouraged by by the management, um, but but at, at risk of um, punishment from the referee if if the referee could find out. But do you think they could they can find out, or are our players quite good at, at faking injury? I think um, the referee is in a very very difficult position. Because he can't go along and say, you know, you're taking the mickey, you know, there's nothing wrong with you, get on your feet, I know what you're up to. He can say that, but if the, what if the player has, does have a serious injury? Mm. You know, then he could very difficult to cry wolf. Yeah. And then he would end up with egg on his face. So it's, I think the, the referee is in a very, very difficult position. Mm. I think the other area that would uh, probably expose it is, would be the use of, I mean, there's so many uh, TV cameras within a crowd these days that they would then start to highlight it and say, look, you know, why, what's going on here? But you only have to see the melodrama that occurs when somebody falls over with a twisted sock these days to sort of doubt the sort of seriousness of the issue. <laughs> um, do, you think that, do you think the players are getting less tough? I think there's been a different, there's a bit of a, a, bit of a sea change with the introduction of so many foreign players mm. into the game. I think there's greater melodrama and exacerbation of, but there again, if you look at society, you know, you've only got to try and cross the road in Italy, haven't you? And the sort of arm waving and the shouting and the bleeping of horns. There's an exaggeration of emotions. Mm. Now, that will happen with a Latin temperament, won't it? Rather than sort of the, the stoical toughness that you would associate with the sort of the British player. Mm. Certainly your Steve Bruce is of the world, that's for sure. <laughs> um, exactly, just before we get off the the um, faking injury uh, topic, um, although arguably we already have, <laughs> um, um, I just wanted to ask one more question, which is sort of slightly on the lighter side of, of this topic, which is about uh, Christmas and rumours of various players um, faking injury uh, so they can have Christmas off. Did you ever did you ever come come across that? It's very difficult to prove, but also then you may say, well, I, you know, there are certain players who probably get booked and sent off as yeah. well, yeah. deliberately, yeah. so they're not playing. And the way the clubs deal with that is that they would say to those players, well, you're in training, whether you're in the team, whether you can't play or not. So, but I have known uh, that the accusation being uh, thrown at certain people. <laughs> yeah. I think there are certain players, I think in probably nearly 21 years as physiotherapist at uh, Norwich City, I would say there were probably three players that were wanting to be footballers, but they didn't want to play football. <laughs> and, you know, they, they love the kudos of it, but I'm, I'm, there were certain aspects of the football that uh, they weren't too enamoured with. Right. Just sort of segueing onto wine rather neatly, because obviously you know a lot about diet and nutrition um, and sport. I mean, do you think wine can be a good thing for a sportsman in, in moderate amounts or, or is a teetotal attitude better? 
No, I, I don't agree. I don't subscribe to the teetotal attitude at all. Um, and Excellent. there are certain, um, particularly foreign coaches, and what I was reading in articles I've read about people who have gone around all uh, overseas clubs. And it was well known that at uh, certain top European clubs, players will be drinking wine on a Friday night. Mm. There are some carbohydrate uh, values. Um, but I would certainly, everything in moderation. But I think uh, one glass of wine, I must admit, on a Friday night, I didn't see a big problem with. Of course, it's like most things. It's, it's moderation, isn't it? Sure. And making sure that you don't. And I think they probably say, right, no drinks whatsoever from Wednesday onwards to stop the injudicious behavior. Mm. But I, I'm, I know jolly well there are certain players who enjoy a glass of wine. A lot of players will be sort of drinking the lagers and the beers and some spirits. But wine was, um, uh, it was probably in the more, the older age group of players where wine was a far more attractive proposition. Not just, I mean, I never saw wine drunk on a Friday night and, and um, with, by players at away matches. It was certainly enjoyed by the staff with dinner and uh, that helped uh, help settle our nerves really, particularly if we were playing at Liverpool or Man United. And it's, um, I would say that they enjoy wine much more in the latter end of their careers and certainly the, the, player, the managers have got a much greater appreciation of the type of wine, the quality of wine. And it's well known that certain um, illustrious gentlemen like Sir Alex Ferguson, I think he has a, he's a wine investor. Indeed. And Jose Mourinho certainly talks about the quality of wine when he goes to away matches rather than uh, sometimes possibly the football. <laughs> How about your relationship to wine? I mean, you're, you're um, uh, something of a, um, a, a connoisseur here. Well, I wouldn't say connoisseur. I've learned a great deal from a friend of mine that's educated me a great deal um, in all aspects of wine. And I was lucky enough a few years ago when I went out to New Zealand and uh, I really learned a great deal there from going sort of the, from the western end to the eastern end in the sort of South Island there and going through the sort of Marlborough area and then up to Blenheim mm. and going through all the vineyards there. And it was just amazing. And you see scenes on the countryside and the sort of topography there that is depicted on certain labels and my wife and I were going around certain vineyards enjoying this enjoying that and what makes the difference between somebody's appreciation of a Sauvignon Blanc and a Pinot Noir and listening to the um, cellar door staff talking about why this tastes different to that one and one vineyard was only the um, across a privet hedge the disparity between the sort of Alan Stone and or Forest Estate and then a cloudy bay. Mm. And you you try the different ones, and there's a great similarity uh, to them with a slight different tweak. And it was all due to the interpretation of the winemaker. Whilst over there, I was brought up the appreciation of, of drinking a Pinot, a very light red, chilled. Mm. Um, particularly in the height of summer. And I thought, you know, I thought, chill red. But it really was excellent. So I really enjoy that much more than some uh, whites in the, in the middle of summer. Right. But then we were lucky enough um, on another trip, we went down to um, South Africa and really enjoyed going around Stellenbosch and Franschhoek 
and all the different vineyards there. But there's a funny story down there, Peter. We were down. The place where we're staying was a wonderful place in Franschhoek, and we, we recommended a certain vineyard. So we went to the vineyard for lunch and looked round the vineyard. And we were there, and our chap was looking, and I thought, and here he came across. So my wife and I were having a glass of the Sauvignon Blanc there. was was just a super drinking, great atmosphere. And he said, are you Tim Shepherd?" <laughs> and I said, well, if you're from the HMRC or the local police, no. <laughs> he said, I've been a season ticket holder for 15 years at Norwich City, <laughs> and I know who you are. So we then ended up talking football Fantastic. over the wine. So... Wine can have its merits and the football gets you everywhere, but it, that was the most interesting. But I love the appreciation of different wines, whether Chilean, particularly a lot of New World, um, and Riocas, um, not so much into the sort of heavy reds very much, but uh, I do, my favorites really are Pinots, um, Riocans, and the Sauvignon Blanc, and the Semillon mix, and sort of learning from friends who will tell me all about the different uh, compositions of wine, of you know, what percentage of different grapes, different types of grape, you know, 5,000 5, different types of grape, and what they all mean. Mm. But basically, I think it helps if you've got a good palate, and then you just keep practicing. But yep. um, <laughs> the other area that I learned a great deal was uh, in New Zealand, was about the quality of the glass. And my wife was a got a very good sense of taste and smell. We were offered this uh, glass of wine and said, no, that's not right. No, no, there's something wrong with it. And they were rather put out thinking, oh dear, you know, why don't they think our wine's good enough? Mm. I said, no, that's not right. Tried another one. No, that's not right. And then the third one, absolutely perfect. And then they apologized. The first two glasses of wine, the glass had just come out of a, a washer. The third glass had stood on a slate, cold, chill slate, and then the wine was put into that, and that Sauvignon Blanc really made all the difference. And I think it was the temperature of the glass and the quality of the glass make a big difference. That's a very useful tip. Thank you. I'll make sure I um, keep my wine glasses in the yeah. fridge, perhaps, in future. <laughs> <You try. laughs> well, you try that, but, I mean, some people, uh, you know, the great danger with whites is they're drinking it far too cold. Yeah. And it ruins the flavour. Yeah. We're talking a little bit um, this month about Pinot Noirs and Sauvignon Blancs. So it's interesting that you pulled those two out as favourites. What is it about those two wines in particular, or styles of wine, that, that sort of get you get your palate going, as it were? I think it was very much appreciation of uh, the Forest Estate wines um, really endorsed that. Um, I don't like too heavy a red, and I found that whoever's wherever whichever vineyard they'd come from there was there was a much more universal taste about an appreciation of uh, all aspects of the wines of the nose of it and the length of it and you, know, you look at the glasses and at certain lights the legs that you appreciate of the the wine within the glass give you a form of the quality and i think i don't like the heavy reds and uh, but i really think that the pinot is pretty universal i think whichever vineyard it comes from it's pretty similar. And I think the same applies to Sauvignon, quite frankly, whereas I think other grapes will give you a greater range of uh, taste. Right. So solid, dependable, 
Um, I think so. Yeah. You, again, come Steve Bruce comes back to mind. <laughs> Just to round things off, we've got this game that we like to play with a a name that uh, rather gives the the style of the game away. It's called Is it a footballer? Is it a wine? Or is it both? Um, are you happy to have a quick go at this? I'm game for it. Go Good. on, fire okay. away. So, uh, I'll just explain the rules. Uh, I'm now going to give you three names uh, in turn. The name could either be a type of wine or a wine region, the surname of a footballer, or both. So, after each of the names I'm going to give to you, simply answer either with wine, footballer, or both. And if you can give me any detail on the wine or the footballer, I'll give you a bonus point. Is that all clear? Right. And are you going to go through an example first? Um, no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought I'd ask. Yeah. Right. Uh, well, actually, um, I don't know. Last last time um, on the last episode, we had uh, Malbec, for example, um, was one, um, and the answer to that was just a just a wine. Um, yeah, yeah. Argentinian uh, wine, very yeah. nice. Well, you would have got bonus point on that one if it'd been the last episode. But that was the last episode, and this is this episode. So let's see how we get on. So the okay. first one I'm going to give you is Bobal. Is that a type of wine uh, or wine region? The surname of a footballer or both? I know you don't like pregnant pauses on the on the uh, on these things, but I'll go for both. You're absolutely right. Now, can you uh, can you expand on either the, the 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 wine or the footballer for a bonus point? I think he's French. Well, uh, might be. <laughs> the information I've got is uh, uh, that there's several Bobals in the sort of Ukrainian and uh, Hungarian leagues. I'll have to say no then. I've, I've, got, <laughs> one, I've got one bonus point, Pete. I've got a point, a point anyway, Pete. You've got I? a point, yeah. Right, well, I'll settle for that. I won't uh, be green. Uh, um, how about, the, um, how about the, the, the grape? I'll give you a clue. Can you, can you tell me anything about that? It's no. a tough one. It's an, it's an obscure one. Um, it's a Spanish grape, uh, apparently one of the uh, most grown grapes in Spain, but only very uh, sparingly used in uh, top quality wine, traditionally used in Spanish table wine you know, as a blend, but apparently making something of a comeback as a, a good wine variety in its own right. So uh, there we go, one, one for the future. Well, I'll, I'll look upon that on your website. I shall look specifically on that one. On footballers, wine should follow that one because there's the Spanish players you get in this country. They will hopefully have an interest. And next time I go to Spain, I'll look out for it. There we go. And maybe we could um, uh, follow the career of uh, Matt V. Bobal from SC Tavria Simferopol of the Ukrainian Premier League too. Who knows? <laughs> it sounds like you're becoming a bit of a football geek. <laughs> I think you have to be on this show. Um, <laughs> anyway, the next one uh, is Grenache. Is that a wine, a footballer, or both? A wine. Yes, you're very good. Uh, can you? Uh, that's two from two, as they would say in American sport. Can you? Can you expand uh, on any information about Grenache? White. Um, no, unfortunately, it's uh, typically a oh, red, 
red wine grape. Well, no, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm colour blind. You didn't know that, did you? <laughs> yeah. I know it's a, I know it's a grape, and I have drunk it, and I think I have come across it many, many times yeah, from the Antipodes as well. Um, well, it's uh, typically a red wine grape, sometimes used to make uh, fortified wine and rosé, apparently, and um, is used in, in everything from table wine right up into being one of the main constituents of Chateau Neuf du Pape. So it's a bit of a utility oh. player, I would say. Oh, well, I've got a nice colors. bottle of that. I've got a nice bottle of that downstairs, so oh, I good. might drink it this, I might open it this weekend and think of our conversation. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, and to uh, finish off, the final name I'm going to put to you is uh, Shepherd. Is that a footballer, a wine, or both? It was a footballer that Sally didn't make it uh, when he was sort of uh, allowed to go from uh, Bolton Wanderers, but then went on to become a physiotherapist instead. <laughs> Absolutely right. Um, there's, there was uh, that one, probably the best um, Shepherd you've just described. Uh, but for the real geeks out there, um, and those on Wikipedia, like myself, there was also a goalie for Bristol Rovers in the 70s called Dick Shepherd, and the Simon Shepherd, who was also the keeper for Watford in the 90s. So, Tim, after all that, you have scored a very, very respectable three points, making you the current record holder on is it a wine, is it a footballer, or both. Great. But thank you so much for being such a, a good sport and for talking to me at such length. Okay, pleasure, Pete. For more from this interview, plus extra unseen content from all our interviews, get your Footballers Wines season ticket on footballerswines.co.uk. It's absolutely free.